Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, there's some, some brilliant set pieces in it, and yeah, it's just kind of like one of those films that will probably never see its caliber again because they just don't make them like that anymore. I could talk about Sean Connery all day. I think he he deserved that Oscar. The magic of De Palma is his ability to just draw you into his movies and just hold you. And this one really has that in spades. It's one of the best meshes of his style with mainstream entertainment. From like scene one, I was drawn into this film. We had that top down shot of Al Capone. I just knew we were in for a treat and I was captivated for two hours. I, I should have seen this 10 years ago. If I could make it a six, I would. Hey everybody, welcome to the Flixwatch podcast. We're joined by Scott. Hello. Cam. Hi, how's it going, guys? And Helen. Hello. And we're going to be talking about The Untouchables. Thank you, as always, to the mighty people for the mighty, mighty tunes. And thanks to Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. Please do remember to write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you can do where you listen to the podcast because it really does help us. And you can join in the conversation with us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on Instagram at FlixWatcher. Hello film fans, welcome to Flix Watcher Podcast. Joining us remotely on a very, very sweaty day, we have Cam and Scott. If you could please tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are and your podcast, please. Sure. So we are a Spy Hards podcast. So basically every week we pick a spy movie. It could be a Jason Bourne, it could be a James Bond, or it could be some very strange ones that we do find. And basically our mission that we've chosen to accept is to find the best spy movies ever and sorry, we put them on a list who are you sorry who are you speaking just so people know oh What's well I, I i'm agent scott good sorry. uh that's <laughs> usually i should start with that but yeah so we have created a list that we called the knock list which is the need to see official classics it's a bit of a long name um of the spy hearts podcast and basically if it makes the knock list it is going to be a blockbuster five-star hit that you could recommend to anyone so we're going to go through all the the crap out there and find the the, the beautiful golden nuggets my name's cam um i co-host the show with scott and uh yeah, um, basically, we are looking at uh, what we call the knock list is the need to see official classics. That's our really clumsy acronym for need to see official classics. And uh, yeah, it's always a battle every week to decide with us and a guest which movies get in. And so a lot of the conversation becomes like, I love this Bond movie, but is it good enough to be on the pantheon of all timers? So that's sort so of the gist of it. Is, is Bond not, def- not by default on the knock list? Some aren't. Some are. 
Okay, which well, can you give an example of one that isn't? I wouldn't. I know. I wouldn't know which one is, but let, give us an example of one that isn't on. Yeah, sure. List. I'll spoil one. Die yeah. another day. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. I know that one. I'm not sure if I've actually seen it because everyone just said it was shit. Uh, that's the one with the invisible car and Denise Richards, right? Uh, Denise Richards is actually in the world is not enough. Um, ah. It's Halle Berry's and Die Another Day. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so I came across your podcast because it was at the time Disney Plus um, kind of launched. Well, it was doing some stuff in the UK, and there's this kind of Twitter thread about trying to you know release Condor Man on Disney Plus, and I was like, shit, I've not seen Condor Man since I was a kid, and uh, so I, I typed in the podcast Condor Man, and y- your guys popped up. I think there's another podcast that's talked about pod- that Condor Man in the whole of the ether in the whole ether of podcasting, but yours yours came up, so I listened to the episode and I've been listening. Uh, since then, I'm not that big spy fan, but when when a film cops up that I like, then I I do I do dive in. So that does that won me over the Condor Man episode. Who was it that hadn't seen Condor Man? Are you two? Neither of us had seen it. Neither of you. Yeah. Whoa, Helen, have you seen Condor Man? I I haven't. No, well, I definitely don't remember it. If I have, I don't even think I've heard of it. Sorry, out of my. Uh... What what I enjoyed is so it's Michael Crawford as a spy, aka um, you don't know who Michael Crawford is. No, I definitely haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so you guys trying to, I, I, I don't know who's trying to explain, I can't remember who's trying to explain who Michael Crawford was, but in the UK, if you're of a certain age, some others do have him, um, mm. guy as Michael Crawford, and that it, as, can, that means nothing to you, so you just stone-faced there. No, no, I know Michael Crawford. My dad um, had a Michael Crawford CD that he played endlessly growing up, so I'm quite aware. But I, yeah. I didn't know him as, that, as an opera singer. I didn't know him as that. We just knew him as like, this, this slapstick fool. Um, in the UK, generally, I didn't know he had a singing career. <laughs> yeah, he was also the he was also the original Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, and crazy. that's crazy. And then he goes and plays a spy that has fake wings. Oh, I used fake. to love that. I used <laughs> Those to wings were so real, Scott. More real than anything <laughs> I've ever seen on the screen. So were the cables attached to him. I mm. do need to rewatch it. I've not seen it since. I was a, we used to have it on VHS as a kid, and it was I don't know why we loved it, but we just did. But anyway, that's how I found your show. <laughs> But we'd say we're talking about the Untouchables. First of all, who chose it? And is it a spy film? Will this make the knock list? And you then gives a synopsis in 60 seconds or less. I'm going to bring the mobile phone up and, and give a timer countdown. Okay, well, the, I was the one that chose the Untouchables. And largely because of the Sean Connery factor, also Brian De Palma, who did the first Mission Impossible. So there's several connections there to spy films. And we just get tired of talking about spy films all the time. We want to do different things. So... The Untouchables is really about the 1930 battle against uh, Al Capone during the bootlegging era in Chicago. And it sort of revolves around Elliot Ness, who was a U.S. Treasury agent who came in, assembled a group of lawmen and really met, uh, you know, Al Capone on his own fighting ground. And it was a uh, battle back and forth for who would win the soul of the city. And that's sort of the gist of the film, really. And Kevin Costner's the star and uh, De Niro plays... Al Capone. So you have two heavyweights going up against each other. Very interesting film. Awesome. Scott, have you seen this before? What are your thoughts of Untouchables? Uh, one of the themes of our podcast is I've never seen any film ever, apparently, because uh, I, it seems to be a first watch every time. And so I had never seen The Untouchables, despite its uh, gravitas. Can I Ooh. ask how old you are, Scott? You, you could. I might not answer. I- I'm a spy, after all. <laughs> Uh, I am the tender age of 34. Uh, okay. I would have thought you should maybe still listen. Well, Helen, do you think you should have seen it by this point? <laughs> I think it's shameful. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind It's kind of a big film for 
all of the stars in it and it is one of De Palma's best so but you know there's lots of films out there and you can't watch them all hey I've never claimed to be an expert at anything and that includes reviewing films so (laughs) I am an idiot it's fine and I will say, actually, in Scott's defense, as of really now, he has become an expert on 1987 Kevin Costner. What, does, what else does that mean? Is that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Nope. No. no. So we, I mean, I'm not sure at what point this is being released, but we recently have covered the other film that Kevin Costner made in the same year, which is No Way Out. Never heard of that one. It's actually a really good spy film. Okay. Um, so yeah, you've never seen it before, Scott. Uh, and that's one of the benefits, that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is we, we, people, other people bring films that we'd never heard of or seen before. And that, that makes it great. Uh, so it must be kind of a nice feature for yourself doing your the podcast that forces you to watch films. But being the, being your first time watching it, what do you think? Do you know, I went, it was strange. I went into it kind of, um, dubious. I know that Connery won the Oscar for this. So I was like, okay, it's got something behind it. And Brian De Palma did Mission Impossible 1, which I love. But apart from that, I had no information. And I don't know anything about American history, so none of that really resonated with me. But from, like, scene one, I was drawn into this film. We had that top-down shot of Al Capone. I just knew we were in for a treat, and I was captivated for two hours. I didn't even look at my phone, and that says a lot about me watching films. What were your thoughts on Helen? Have you seen this before? Yeah, I've seen this quite a few times, possibly into double digits. Um I probably discovered it around the time when I was just trying to, well, maybe a little bit before, but I had a period where I was trying to watch all the De Niro films, so it would have definitely been around then. And, um, yeah, I I just think it's really great from De Palma. Like the shot you mentioned, there's some great kind of shots in it. There's the, the scene at the end on the stairs. There's De Niro wearing his silk pants, which you don't see, but apparently mm-hmm. he had to wear Capone's silk pants. So when you when you say seen on the stairs, do you mean with the baby, or do you mean with, with uh, Sean Connery's getting Malone getting? Oh, with the baby. The, sure. You know that that's that's one of the ones that um, I can remember. Um, so yeah, I've seen it loads. I hadn't seen it that recently, so um, was really excited to uh, revisit this one for the podcast. Yeah, I think I first heard of it. Because it came up in a list of the worst accents on film. Um, I think it was Empire's list, isn't it? It's number one on the Empire well, readers. Uh, no, it was, it was one on TV, I saw, so it wasn't Empire. But um, it's, it, it, it frequently comes up, Sean Curran's accent as being the worst Irish accent ever. And that was the first time I'd heard of it. And I thought it was a joke film for the, for the most part because of that one reason. Um, and also because I didn't follow Sean Connery outside of Bond, so I didn't really know who's an actor outside of Bond. And then one day I watched it, I was like, oh, shit, this is a decent film. But this rewatch, I thought, I felt it was a bit tamer because I, I think we've seen, I, well, I, I, I like quite, I like this kind of history of America, this prohibition, Italian mafia gangster piece. So things like Boardwalk Empire was something I kind of lapped up. You have, you have Capone played there by Stephen Graham, which is hilarious that some scouser uh, is playing, is playing Al Capone uh, and, and does him really well. So I, yeah, I really enjoyed it, but I just thought, I wonder what it would look like or feel like if it was, if it was refilmed today. I'm sure it'd be a lot hard, more harsh of a film, and I'm sure they kind of play the story in, in you know different ways. And I'm sure they'll do other stories with Elliot Ness going forward. I don't know what your thoughts, guys. I mean, I don't think it would be as this violent if they made it now. I think it would be PG-13. Really? And I don't think you'd have any of the stylish direction going on. I think it would be. I mean, nowadays, why would you make an R-rated movie for a theater? Like people don't really go to them, you know, outside of like known properties or horror films. 
a movie like this would wind up on, well, Netflix or, uh, you know, Amazon Prime or something. And you're not going to get a Brian De Palma. You're not going to get David Mamet writing it. And it's not going to be that bloody. So you're thinking purely economics here. But we've had Scorsese with The Irishman on, on Netflix. You got Spike yeah. Lee doing stuff, going straight to Amazon. It's not, it's not outside the realms of possibility. Brian De Palma does a... Yeah, is that kind of. But you that. you named uh, like a streaming two streaming movies right there. Like they're not playing big screen yet, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. It's kind of interesting because this was considered pretty violent for when it came out. I mean, obviously, it's quite tame to us now because we're used to so much more. But I think there was quite a bit that. I mean, the opening scene is you know a, a child gets blown up in uh, the first mm-hmm. few minutes, which is. That's probably dark. the most shocking moment <laughs> of the entire film, even though you know it you don't see her physically being blown up. And even though you kind of, if you've seen it a few times, obviously you haven't, Scott, or you may have heard about the baseball bat scene, even (laughs) though you know it's coming, it's still pretty, pretty brutal. So I guess, I don't know. I still think it's kind of of its time for its violence. And Yeah, that's what I mean. I think it's of its time, but I think if, because looking, I I was just, when I was just talking film, was, uh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that was, you know, big director, super violent at least towards the end mm-hmm. um so that was i guess mike and that's you know revisionist history as well yeah <laughs> in a way <laughs> there's um, no history in the untouchables let's be honest <laughs> no well, i mean talk about that talk about that cam well i mean if you even do a cursory glance at the actual history of the takedown of al capone there's none of it in really in the untouchables um <laughs> i uh, spoiler uh you know nitty was not thrown off a roof by elliot ness um nonsense isn't it I think what's interesting about The Untouchables is that, and, you know, maybe we can talk about this in terms of stories that are based on real events, but um, this is about the myth of Elliot Ness and much of this movie, it's a Western. We see these characters on horseback. It's set to Ennio Morricone music. He's known for all of his spaghetti Western music. This is very much the outlaws coming in and you have to get kind of the tough talking, you know, sheriff to get his people together and clean up the town. And, it plays it with that sort of simplicity and it's much more about these larger than life figures and just the very simple morality of, you know, the heroes versus the villains. Mm. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, I've never thought of it that way. And that's, I think that's very, very true. Yeah. You have the guys on horseback and the shootout uh, on, the, on, the Can- on the Canadian border. That's um, definitely just time with the Western theme. I mean, Scott, were you, what are your thoughts on just on the whole thing generally? If we're just talking about like comparing it to today, if it was ever going to get remade or anything like that, if that's what we're looking at, I don't see it being the same. I don't see the violence being used. I can see it being more of a tense thriller if they remade it today, um, ramping up that side of things. But I don't think you have the character work of, say, Connery in it. Because he is the standout by and large, even though, you know, Kevin Costner is is the lead of the film. I, I, I sorely missed the second that Connery had left the film. Hmm. It's, de- it's definitely noticeable, um, mm. but also noticeable watching it this time round was how out of place his accent is. And as soon as you hear it, you're just like, oh, definitely that. I think if they did remake something like this now, it would probably be a TV series. It would probably yeah. have to be based a bit more in fact, because people would just be like, this didn't happen. That didn't happen. I'm not believing that. I think we're a bit more sort of sceptical of things and more likely to to google it to find out if if that really happened and less like oh yeah like this person doesn't exist but i'm gonna like feel really emotionally like upset when they get sort of knocked off by a gangster or something so i think we'd be 
a little bit more sort of wanting of a bit more realism if it was remade today. But I mean, it was based on a TV show originally. I mean, Brian De Palma said he didn't really care about the TV show whatsoever, which I would say he brought over to Mission Impossible as well. I don't think he's a big <laughs> fan of the Mission Impossible TV show. But um, that show has not aged particularly well. It's not one people hold up as one of the all-timers of 1950s television. But I think if you made an untouchable show now, it would work. Like, I think if you did it on a streaming platform and you had a, you know, interesting cast, I think it could really work. Um, when we talk about, I was going to say, though, with remakes, they kind of remade this movie. It was called Gangster Squad. And no that one remembers horrific. that movie. <laughs> no, I, one of the films I went to cinema and thought, why is this a film? Uh, yeah. Ryan, Depp, wasn't it? Was it Ryan Gosling, that one? Ryan no. Gosling. Yeah, it was. Johnny yeah. Depp. It was. was Johnny Depp, Elliot Ness? Uh, no, it was set in California. Like it wasn't the same. It wasn't the Elliot story. It was in the California mob, but it was, I mean, it was pretty close. They were clearly ripping off the untouchables left, right, and central, uh, center. Uh, I mean, again, I, I, I defer people to, um, Boardwalk Empire for that kind of story in prohibition era America. I think that tells us in large, a really good story around that kind of era. Uh, but I do like the idea. I think a lot of these kind of films and the tenseness and the thriller aspect that uh, that Scott's talking about is best portrayed in in like a long form, you know, a mini series, six episodes would be absolutely perfect for this kind of story. And when it comes to based on a true story, things I don't, I'm not so fussed when people are amalgamated. So the fact Malone isn't wasn't part of the Untouchables, I'm not so fussed. But when they have Nitty being thrown off the roof, I'm like, yeah, but he's a real character. He didn't get thrown off the roof. You could have thrown anyone else off the roof. It didn't matter. Just throw someone else through. You can make that up. It's things like that that irritate me <laughs> in the in the true story. But yeah, and you said it right at the top camp. He doesn't get thrown off the roof. Yeah, well, I mean, so much of the legend of Elliot Ness came from a book published after he died, very much reframing him as this hero of the Prohibition era. So the movie's really, it is an examination of that myth. Like, it's not trying to, you know, be a historical document. Um, hmm. It's too flashy. It's too stylish. Brian De Palma, if you, you know, watch any of his films, like, he's not a guy interested in chronicling history. He's a man who's about style and about, you know, bringing the, you know, basically the movie to life every second he can. You know, he's all about the sequence, which, you know, you've got the baby carriage. You've got the scene where the the POV sequence where they're going to take down the Sean Connery character. All these amazing moments. He wants to live in those cinematic moments. So I don't like there are uh, movies based on true stories I find much more egregious. You know, Scott and I have talked about them where the composite character, for example, is super generic. Like it's some mm. random person spouting exposition for the full movie. Here, every character has a ton of personality. They may be amalgamations of real people, but each one feels very specific. And I think that's what matters, that it's telling an entertainment. It's not presenting itself as, you know, I don't know that you could ever take it as real life when you're watching, you know, Kevin Costner throw Nitty off the roof. It's like, <laughs> this did not happen. This clearly did not happen. This whole court case seems ridiculous, you know. <laughs> Or Sean Connery pretending to be Irish. Is he even <laughs> pretending, he though? He's not pretending. I feel like there's one scene where he's like, okay, I've got an Irish accent, and then he's just back to the Connery accent. The Connery accent, exactly what it is. But I will, uh, I will agree with you, actually, Kobe, just about um, it being a series if they ever remade it, because we recently covered a film that we weren't big fans of called The Little Drummer Girl, which is based off of a Jean Le Carré novel. And, and that became was, a miniseries, didn't it? It did, exactly. Um, hmm. And that was by Diane Keaton in the 80s, funnily enough, and it became a miniseries on BBC, and the miniseries is 10 times better. 
Like yeah. I would watch that on repeat. And I think that gave it the room to breathe. So maybe this story could, could do that. I think it's interesting when, because we've had, we've done Tinker Tales Hold a Spy on here and we've heard the, you know, another Le Carre, uh, joint. I've not seen the miniseries on those on BBC, but I heard that was really good as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting that they can maybe exist in the same ethos, but it just has to be done well on both sides. But yeah, I've heard nothing but great stuff about, about the little drum girl and all, all John McCary stuff, Night Manager that, uh, the BBC has done recently has been, has been great. There's a lot of depth to his writing and I think it's like his character writing as well. He's so specific and detailed that there's just a lot to go to. I guess if this was to be a series, there'd probably need to be sort of a, a multitude of resources to get, to get that level because the book was kind of written on his sort of, sort of recollections and memoirs and less as a kind of, sort of facts so you're obviously going off how he remembers things and um towards the end of his life I think he uh, was kind of rather down on his look and um death was a result of uh, ironically um alcoholism mm-hmm. do you reckon he he misremembered throwing knit off the roof and that's what he, he had the uh his biographer right <laughs> maybe well, okay. I, I don't know Apparently. We'd have to dig up that autobiography, but it's like in real life, Nitty um, shot himself three times in the head. Like mm. he committed suicide during a period of like, I think it was like alcohol induced insanity, basically. And they said the first shot he missed and shot his hat off. And I watched the Untouchables where Kevin Costner shoots his hat off, and I'm like, huh, like is that some sort of little reference to what actually happened in real life? I have no idea. Um, guys, is there anything you want to say before we head to the scores? I could talk about Sean Connery all day. I think you know that he is he he deserved that Oscar. And you know, let's talk about Sean Connery. Cause like like I said at the start, and I'm I'm sure for many people, Sean Connery is the first James Bond, and not much more than that. So, give us a bit of a lowdown. Where does kind of rank in his in his filmography for you? Well, that was one of the things that brought me into this film was having it be the one film that won Connery an Oscar. And mm. you know, he he was fantastic in The Rock which is in the 90s. Uh, he's done other films, uh, Last Crusade as, as well. <laughs> um, great in that. And Robin Hood, just, Prince of Thieves, another the, Connery joint. Sure. Right at the end there. Maybe not an Oscar-winning performance, but uh, <laughs> he was there. But yeah, I just think like this this film gave him the room to, to play around, whereas he's been stuck in some of these roles. Like Bond is quite prescriptive sometimes. Like You, you kind of have to be this defined character that Ian Fleming set out. So this allowed him to play. Same with The Rock, actually, I'd say. It gave him a little bit of room to mess around. And also, his career wasn't doing spectacularly at this point. Like, he was, you know, he was still a working guy. He's doing fine. But, like, Connery was not the movie star that we think of him as before he does Untouchables. And that movie was very much responsible for putting him back in the big pop culture sphere. It carries him right to the end of his career. And at the same time, it's launching Kevin Costner. Because mm. Kevin Costner is a guy, he'd done a few things. He'd done like Silverado, which was the one, a Western that got him a lot of attention. But they wanted Mel Gibson for this movie. Mel Gibson was who Brian De Palma really wanted for Elliot Ness. And Mel Gibson ended up choosing Lethal Weapon instead. And so they said, okay. well... Okay. The, the studio was actually kind of like, we don't need stars. This movie sells itself. Get whoever. And so they wound up with Costner. And I think it really does ground who Kevin Costner is going to be for the rest of his career. He's kind of this moral center character we can always look at. He's very earnest. And, you know, you get him set up here. And as well as the movie Scott referenced earlier, No Way Out. That just kind of starts the dominoes going. And then, you know, we head into Bull Durham and Field of Dreams and Dances with Wolves. Like, 
it, this is very much the launch pad for both. Waterworld. Yeah, Waterworld. Uh, all-time classic. All-time classic. <laughs> but, you know, this is like a relaunch pad for Sean Connery and a launch pad for Kevin Costner. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, way, a bad way to be typecast, I suppose, as, you know, a, a nice, morally sensitive guy. Uh, mm. It's generally going to be on the, on the on the side of right, is it? Like, guys, let's head to the scores. I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have come from the worlds of film, television, music, food, comedy, and podcasting. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. Welcome to the Flixwatcher scores. All of your scores will be out of five. You may have decimal places. And uh, we will start with you, please, Cam, with your recommendability. Recommendability? I would give this one actually a five for recommendability. I think it's something that people should see. They may not love De Palma's style, but I think it's a movie people should see. So I think a five. Scott? I I definitely agree with Cam on this one. Uh, I I should have seen this 10 years ago. I feel silly for having not seen it. So uh, if I can make it a six, I would. It's a five. (laughs) Helen? Uh, I give it a five as well. As gangster films go, it's it's got it all. It is massively entertaining for what is a two-hour runtime with Mm. a story that sometimes you feel that maybe you've kind of seen it before and you've kind of seen, you know, there's been stuff recently... um, and it's, you know, there's some, some brilliant set pieces in it. And yeah, it's just kind of like one of those films that will probably never see its calibre again because they just don't make them like that anymore. So um, yeah, a five. Just don't make them like that anymore. I'm going to go for 4.8 because, yeah, I mean, I mean, I recommend it to most people. I don't know. Let's put it to five actually because I can't think of who I wouldn't recommend it to apart from people who are too young or very, very old. But I, I think I prefer to see this story told again in in a different way that you know David Fincher does with Mindhunter, for example. I think that'll be a great way to to portray the story. Um, repeat viewing score, Cam. Repeat viewing. Um, mm-hmm. I would give it a four. It's a movie I love. I've seen it. I've seen it four times now. But it's not one that like I would burn through rewatches on. So I can't quite give it a five because, for example, Army of Darkness, I've seen like 80 times or something like that. Uh, <laughs> Evil Dead 2, you know, movies like Star Wars. Um, I don't put Untouchables on that level. So how do you define a spy film that you'd consider for your for your show versus not? Because this is, I guess, spy adjacent. It's lethal enforcement. It's a bit of undercover work. Is this well, not- this falls more into like the gangster genre. Um, typically, if it involves more, I guess, law enforcement... We don't tend to include them. Um, we look more at s- secret agent, spy, assassin, so it has to be, it has things to be like that. Specifically, secret agent, kind of, um, even though they're both enforcing the law. Yeah. Like, Scott, what do you think? I mean, we do walk the line from time to time. I mean, we covered all of the Men in Black films. Mm. I don't know why. I, don't, I watched Men in Black International <laughs> twice for, for my sins. It was not a fun time. But, I saw um, that just came on Netflix. So I'm going to avoid that. Yeah, I <laughs> would. Uh, that's minus five stars. Um, <laughs> but 
yeah, I, I think we tend to try and avoid like detective stories because they don't. They might do some undercover work or like you know snooping or that sort of thing, but they're not being a spy or there's no secret agent stuff or undercover stuff that way. I, I don't know. If someone puts a movie to us, we will consider it. We've had several that have been put to us and been like, oh, there is a spy element here, uh, and and covered them. Like Cars Two is a spy film. Hmm. And what about um, the the latter Fast and Furious series films? Yep. Mm-hmm. They're in, yeah. <laughs> um, Scott, repeat viewing score for The Untouchables. I went with 2.5 with this one. And it's not meant to be a slight against the film. It's just I don't feel like this is something you want to watch again for a while. It feels like it's a really good, uh, you know, enriching watch. You get a lot from it and then you put it away for a couple of years and then you come back to it and go, oh, yeah, that was a good film. It's not it's not like an MCU film where you just have Iron Man 3 on in the background and you're just kind of watching it. You have to pay attention for two hours and that's not something people can do once a month. Helen? I'm going to go a little bit higher than that. I'm going to give it a three, um, but that's mainly for the times that I've watched it before. Um, probably not in a rush to go out and watch it again, but um, if someone was suggested they'd wanted to watch it and I hadn't seen and they hadn't seen it, I'd be like, yeah, sure, put it on. But yeah, a three, three for its lifetime of rewatches for me yeah i'm gonna go for three as well um because i've only seen it twice um i, I like the way you kind of phrase it's got it's like you, you pull it out of the bag once every few years uh for me it's been at least 10 years since i saw it the first time and i think there's sometimes there's a nice cadence of re- rediscovering like oh that was a good film let's put it on now uh knowing you're going to enjoy it so i think it will be that kind of thing for me so yeah let's go for both of three small screen score cam this is tough because I think it's the type of movie that people could totally enjoy at home. Mm. But you look at the De Palma visuals and they just like scream big screen to me. So I'm going to go, God, I'm going to give it like a 3.5 because I think it totally works at home. That's sadly the only way I've been able to see it. If it ever plays on a big screen here in Vancouver, BC, I'll go and see it. But I do think it's the sort of thing that will have an extra punch to just seeing you know that baby carriage scene at the at the you know the rail station on the big screen would probably be incredible. Have you guys seen? Was it which Naked Gun was it where they where they spoofed this? Yeah, it's the third cars? one. It's the third one. I saw that on the big screen. <laughs> Not as impressive. <laughs> I think I've seen that one on the big screen. Like I would rather have seen this on the big screen than that. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> small screen, small Scots. I went for a four point five. Apart Ooh. from a small fraction of you know. I would love to see it at the cinema. This film, I think it's perfectly fine for a good TV at home. I mean, if you're watching it on one of those old, you know, 10-inch CRT TVs that you have in the the corner, or maybe like Michael Scott's TV in the office, maybe not the right (laughs) television. It comes an inch out. Yeah, it just pops out. Um, Maybe not the right size. But uh, if you've got a a generally average-sized television, I think you've got enough to see it on. Do you guys have kind of, do you have like rep cinemas, uh, Cam, where they tend to play old, mainly old films? Yeah, um, we've got a couple. One does more art house stuff. Mm. So you might see some Hitchcock play there or film noir, but largely they just do more, you know, Bergman or Fellini type stuff. We also have another one that does a little more general. I don't know that they would necessarily grab Untouchables, though. They tend to go for more for things like Terminator or, you know, Rambo or that sort of thing. Tim Burton's Batman. That's what, yeah, because Helen, I was trying to think about Prince Charles. Would they... They probably would show the untouchables, but I think it'd be quite easy to miss it. Yeah, I'm trying to think whether I've seen it before, but this definitely feels like it'd be something they'd 
they'd do as an anniversary thing or, or at least part of some part of the season, Palmer season. Yeah. with Scarface and yeah, I can see it like mm-hmm. a yeah, I can see it like that. Um, your, what's your small screen score, Helen? Yeah, so I've only seen it on a small screen, and until this watch, when I've been watching it, then I'd kind of not been that passionate about cinema in general because I was much much younger. But watching it on a, a smaller screen this time round, I was like, actually, I think the next time I see it, I would. I would enjoy it to see it as it was intended on the big screen. I think it's a combination of the the sight and sound for this because the score is fantastic and the two just work together really, really, really well. So, uh, yeah, a four. I mean, if you haven't seen it and you can only see it on a small screen, I'd recommend seeing it. But if the chance does come along for the big screen, then, yeah, do that. Yeah, I'm getting a 3.5. I think I'd like to see it, the Prince Charles or another rep cinema uh, when it's coming along. That's probably the way I'd watch it sooner than picking out, with, uh, you know, next time it crops up on Netflix in a few years' time. And there are some scenes in it which are great. And I think some attention is multiplied by you know, the number of people in, in, the, in the screening room with you as well. So that collective experience would make it uh, pop a bit more, I think, for me. 3.5. So engagement score, Cam. It's a five for me in terms of just keeping me locked to the screen. It's a five. And, you know, Scott said, you know, it didn't make him look at his phone. And that is something that we struggle, I think, more with now, just mm. with our te- attention spans. I mean, you're watching something that's like a two and a half star movie, three star movie. I think you're more likely to reach for the phone at certain points. And Untouchables is one. It's just d- the magic of De Palma is his ability to just draw you into his movies and just hold you. And this one really has that in spades. It's th- one of the best meshes of his style with mainstream entertainment. Scott. I telegraphed my answer earlier. It has to be a five. I couldn't put my phone down. And and trust me, I, I put my put phone, phone down. Oh, sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't pick my phone up. I say that again. I'll, I'll do that again. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It's right. baked in now. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> run with it. Run with it. But yeah, like I talk to Cam all the time and I ignore him as much as I can. I have my phone, mm. you know, I just put him off. But this film, I put it away. Helen. So I'm going to go a little bit lower. So I'm like five engagement, but then the moment... Um, Malone, Connery's character is out of the picture. That's when the kind of the energy and the pace and kind of your interest drops a little bit. And that's when this time around I was a bit like, well, I've kind of seen it before and was kind of like doing a bit of fact-checking on my phone. So uh, I'm going to give it a 4.5. I'm going to give it a 4.8. I agree with the kind of energy going out when Connery goes, but there were still scenes that had had with you know attention and the the baby scene on the stairs for example because it's hadn't seen it for a while i, I think that plays to the repeat viewing score it's kind of nice to forget what happens in films so you can almost rediscover it i really couldn't remember which way it was going to go and i was like oh no the baby's gonna be fine oh no is it or is it oh no it's gonna oh no they're gonna kill a bit oh oh okay good, good. um it was that kind of thing where i just really i was in it at certain points there were i think there were kind of peaks and troughs but generally yeah it's high engagement there and that gives us an overall score of 4.20625. Very good. That's pretty good. Even with a slightly lower small screen score from people. Guys, let's head over to Twitter because that's where we have a few reviews from our listeners. And if you are following us, if this is the first time you listen to us, do follow us on Twitter. We are at FlixWatcherPod. And one of the main reasons to follow us is because we do give a shout out before we go into record and say something like this. 
We're reviewing Untouchables with Tiberius Hardy. You might have to explain that, Scott. Uh, Cam V. Smith uh, from Spyhards Podcast. Have you seen it? Tell us your thoughts on a score out of five stars for an on-air shout-out on Flixwatcher. And we had a decent response. Cam, as this is your film, do you want to find one of the responses for this tweet and, and read it out to us? Sure. Why don't I jump to Liam Dempsey, mm. um, who I think does the Spotlight Podcast, I believe, actually. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Formerly of, of this pod. Yeah, he did um, a 4.5 star review and he said, Near masterpiece. Feels like an epic, but is just under two hours. Endlessly thrilling and exciting. A killer ensemble cast. Connery transcends his bad accent because he's just so ba- damn badass. And De Palma's Brevera filmmaking on full display. Fantastic Morricone score too. I need to, I'm going to schedule this Morricone score for tomorrow for when I've got some work to do. Scott. I was going to go with Liam's, actually, but uh, let me pick another one, <laughs> just because Liam's such a good guy. But uh, let's go with our friends, actually, over at the uh, uh, My Drunk Movie Theatre podcast. So, actually, five stars. This is one of my all-time favourite Connery performances. Yes, even that Irish accent. It's well-paced, fun, and it hits you in the feels at the right moments. Plus, the shootout at Union Station is one of those sequences that really sticks with you. That's the Chicago way. that is such a nice scene actually Helen Uh, this one is from Lee Thomas superb my favourite De Palma has more than one career best performance and a brilliant score from Ennio Morricone five tax evasion charges out of five like what you did there Lee (laughs) I do need to watch this again I need to listen to the score again I, I, I maybe missed that um Cam and Scott I think there's one more each for you to pick up okay I'll do the Betamax video club it's a five-star review. Stylish, smart, amazing cast tells the old story with new panache. Deserved Oscar for Connery, accent aside. Boy, people <laughs> want to pick on that accent, I tell I tell you. We, we do, we do. I, I need to know what else. who else is up for an award at the same time as Connery in this year. Well, Morgan Freeman, Albert Brooks, and Denzel Washington were. But what for what films? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> but they were there. I help. mean, you know, Denzel, Morgan... They're pretty, yeah, pretty they're, big, they're heavy hits, pretty big names. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Morgan Freeman was maybe street smart that year. Scott, last one. The last one comes from Gidget Von LaRue. Simple, really. Perfection of a film. I'd say that's like five stars, maybe. But yeah, maybe, but thanks no so stars much, guys. On that one. Remember your stars, people. It's very important. Remember the stars. Gidget knows. Gidget knows best than this. Thanks, guys, for the for all the reviews on Twitter. Do follow us uh, if you haven't, if you listen to us for the first time, as I say, and you want to get more of these tweets in advance. Um, Scott and Cam, can you sign up by telling everyone where we can find you online and say goodbye and sayonara to all the listeners? Well, for spies, we're very easy to find. We're basically <laughs> everywhere at spyhards, S P Y H A R D S, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Apparently, we're on TikTok. Mm, you might find us there. You never know. <laughs> Uh, anything from you, Cam? No, and you can just um, follow us on Letterboxd as well because we have our knock list there. We have the disavowed list, which calls oh, out okay. the worst spy films ever. Um, and you, we often actually tease some movies coming up that maybe we don't uh, make that public elsewhere. So there you have it. And is that uh, Spy Hards simple as that on Letterboxd? Yep, letterboxd.com slash spyhards. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Enjoyed this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast? Why not leave us a five star review on iTunes? You can also follow us at Flix Watcher Pod on Twitter and we're at Flix Watcher on Instagram. 
Thanks as always to the mighty people for their mighty, mighty tunes and Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. If you're looking to get your podcast edited as sweet as this, get in touch with Ben and that's Rockwood, R-O-K-K Wood Audio. Tell them Flixwatcher sent you. just heard a stripped media production 